Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Duncan Astle is a programme leader at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at Cambridge. You're very welcome, Duncan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Cathy. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always very, very exciting to speak to a real-life brain scientist. In the flesh. In the flesh. (laughs) And everybody's dying to know, you know, what's it like for you? Like, how did you get into this field in the first place? That's a good question. So I originally did a psychology degree, and I just really enjoyed it. And the thing that I enjoyed most was the research project that we got to do at the end. And I just, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I wanted to do more. And I saw a, a PhD advertised at a different university. So I remember saying to my supervisor, who oh, do you think I should apply? And she said, oh, yes, absolutely, you should apply. So I applied and I got the role and I started the PhD and I really enjoyed that. And I kind of always thought that at some point I should probably stop, but I just kept going. And then I moved to Oxford, which is the when I trans- transitioned into studying children in child development and was there for some time. And then continued for a while and then I saw a job come up at Cambridge at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit to start a new program on studying children's brains and so I applied and the person in charge was in fact um, this is many years ago was the supervisor who had originally supervised my undergraduate project all those years ago and that was the first time I'd met her so I've seen her again in about nine years. Wow and I'm dying to ask what did you actually do your doctorate on? My doctorate was on something called task switching, which is quite a sort of esoteric kind of thing. So task switching is where you create experiments where people have to essentially switch between performing different cognitive tasks. And so it was based on young adults, and I would strap electrodes to their heads whilst they performed these kind of tasks that I'd created where they'd have to switch, say, I don't know, switch between English and French or switch between processing the color of something versus the shape of something. And we were trying to simulate what it's like in everyday life when we're constantly chopping and changing between different cognitive routines. I basically did that for three years and I, I really enjoyed it. But by the end of that, I felt like I'd done enough task switching. And that's when I then transitioned into studying childhood. And actually, that topic of task switching, it's its very much of interest at the moment because everybody's gaming, watching Netflix, doing their homework at exactly the same time. And everybody's quite interested in whether or not it's possible, whether it's a good idea to let children study whilst listening to music, whilst playing a game. What's your sort of, I mean, you spent three years on it. What are your three top tips about task switching? The biggest finding really that you get in every task switching paradigm you try is the switch cost. So there's always a a pretty substantial cost to performance. You're less accurate and you're slower when you're chopping and changing between different things. And you see that in everyday life as well. And so the bottom line is that performance drops quite remarkably when we try and do too many things at once. That doesn't mean to say that, for instance, you can't listen to music whilst working. It depends on the type of music. But 
it's certainly the case that if you're if you're having to direct attention to multiple different things at once, then there is a, a real cost to chopping and changing. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about myths in this podcast, but is it true that it's a myth that women are better at multitasking than men? Yeah, that's a myth. Woohoo! I got one yeah. right. <laughs> um, it's really interesting. People love gender differences mm-hmm. um, because it sort of plays to stereotypes a lot. There was a quite now quite infamous paper published not that long ago, which made some, the, the neuroscience was okay within it. Um, and they you know, noticed some small differences in the brains of men and women. But then in their interpretation, that oh, well, that must be why women are so good in social situations, whereas men make such great leaders. And of course, oh. so it's just playing into sort of terrible stereotypes that are not afforded by the data whatsoever. So it's amazing, actually, how frequently these sort of myths kind of keep coming back up because we love to interpret any differences we see as meaningful and as linking to stereotypes we already have. And neuromyths or myths about the brain are so attractive to people. It's almost like, you know, it's very, very hard to move away from them. We see in education, and we're going to talk about some of these in a second, you know, that even at a policy level, people aren't particularly scientifically literate and they're not listening to what I mean even if you go on to any of the neuroscience sites there are regular blogs talking about the fact that it is you know not true that we only use 10% of the brain etc can we just dwell on those for a moment why do you think these neural myths remain so persistent I think that we have created a sort of fertile ground in which those sorts of myths catch on so I do a lot of talks in schools and I always start off with some neuromyths and some of them people laugh at because they sort of, you know, for instance, certain exercises that are designed to kind of, you know, rocking your head forwards and backwards to encourage blood to the frontal lobes to boost concentration. I mean, that does have the obvious air of nonsense. But when you get onto things like learning styles, your brain's predisposed to learn in this way or that way and, and information must be delivered in the preferred format. That's really popular. The majority of people that I encounter believe that to be true. And I think it's because we've we created a scenario whereby we want sort of, I'm loath to say quick fixes, but we want to feel like there's some sort of secret that's to be unlocked, a silver bullet, that once, once we implement it in the classroom, that will resolve everything. Every kid who's struggling to learn will suddenly find it much easier. And I think that's why there's this sort of seductive allure of the neuromyth. Plus, there's a nice study showing that that if you if you put a picture of a brain next to the same information, people find it more plausible, even though the, the picture is utterly irrelevant, right? So something about seeing pictures of brains, or even even putting brain in the title of an intervention, suddenly seems to give it this air of scientific credibility. And without mentioning any products, we can all think of some products that have the word brain in them that I'm sure you would laugh and mock because they're ridiculous and not evidence-based at all. Yeah, I, I'm mentioning their names, but there's an obvious one. But there's a whole slew of them, right? I mean, there's, but you know, there was a, a spate of interventions for dyslexia designed on improving children's balance because you know, this one guy noticed that his dyslexic kid also had balance problems. Ergo, train the balance, and the reading will improve. And of course, the reading did improve because the the daughter got older. But kind of the conclusion was drawn that that was well. That's the balancing exercises, you know. And for several thousand pounds, you too could sign your child up for this miracle cure. And that kind of stuff is very popular. 
the other thing that we often hear about is even parents might say, oh, I'm a real left brain thinker. My husband's a right brain thinker. I mean, tell us a little bit about that neuromyth. Yeah, so that's based on the idea that you know the left brain is for logic and reason and the right brain is for creativity. That's also nonsense. The vast majority of cognitive functions are really equally distributed across the left and right hemispheres of the brain. And there's this big chunky cable that connects them called the corpus callosum, which is sort of the biggest tract in the brain. They're incredibly densely interconnected, those two halves. There are some subtle differences. You know, there are certain areas in the left, for example, that we think are more involved in in language, and there are certain structures in the right that might be more involved in you know, inhibiting responses, for example. But generally speaking, you use the left and your right for pretty much everything you're doing. What is the sort of response that you get when you deliver those talks in schools, both from teachers or pupils? It's a mix, right? So when, when, for instance, I get them to do some exercises at the start, and I sort of pretend that, you know, because I'm a neuroscientist, I always like to start with these brain exercises. And I get them, you know, they're there moving around. And I explain to them, you know, this is really boosting your concentration. And then I say to them, like, I want to tell you there are some real myths in neuroscience, and I'm afraid you've just experienced one of them. And they all laugh, and we all have a good laugh. And then we do some ones that are very obvious, like, well, I'm, I, you know, they, you can see them speaking to the, the person sat next to them. Well, I always thought that was rubbish anyway. But then we go through some of the others, things like learning styles. And, you know, you only use 10% of your brain or 5% of your brain or whatever and left brain, right brain, and those are much more popular. And there's a slight air of embarrassment because, you know, you hear something that, well, I thought that was absolutely true. And now I realize that it's just a myth. Mm -hmm. So I think a mixture of hilarity at some of the obvious ones, but then it's a slight air of embarrassment, I think, on everyone's part. Now, I know that one of your great areas of research interest is memory. This too is an area very, very poorly understood. And if you, say, were asked, if you, if you had a chance to speak to, say, a secondary school teacher who's got a big classroom of kids, they're all facing their GCSEs or A-levels at the end of the year, what sort of key things would you hope that that secondary school teacher understands about memory mm -hmm. that perhaps in your experience professionals in, in sort of teaching positions are not aware of? The big thing I would say is that memory is multiple different things that sort of work together as part of a system. And we've got to understand how the different types of memory work and how they intersect in order to get the most out of learning. For example, in long-term memory, a classic distinction is between episodic memory, so where you parked the car this morning, perhaps, or, or what you had for dinner yesterday, or the last time you saw your friend, and what we call semantic memory, which is like a, the body of facts. Now, when you first learn something, one of the ways it's represented is in episodic memory. So for example, the first time you learned that Paris is the capital of France, that will have been an episode. You know, I remember yesterday when the teacher said, oh, Paris is the capital of France. But gradually over time, that memory changes and it changes from being an episodic memory and a memory of an event that happened to being a semantic memory, so part of your memory store. And constantly, what our brains are doing is, is sort of storing everything in this sort of temporary short-term buffer, which is one way of thinking about episodic memory. And then over time, gradually transitioning those memories into semantic memories, which are durable, potentially last a lifetime. You know, you can use it in the exam, you can use it next year, you can use it in 10 years. And what we now are beginning to realize is that there are some contexts in which memories that are in episodic formats 
can much more readily be transitioned into those more durable, long-term semantic memories. And really, when you think about what teaching is, a part of it, at least, is creating the context where people are learning new information and new concepts and and new facts and learning new skills and allowing those to transition to be something that's durable, that's going to last a lifetime. So the key thing is how to move from that sort of episodic to consolidation and what we need to do to facilitate that as teachers, as parents, and what learners themselves need to understand about that process. Exactly. For example, we know that a great deal of that consolidation, the transition from episodic to semantic, happens during sleep, right? Because there's some really nice studies showing that during sleep, a part of the brain called the hippocampus is very active. And in those subjects where it's creating particular patterns of activity, those people the next day show better consolidation than others, right? So something important is happening in sleep. We need quality sleep. We know that each time you repeat information or you revisit information, you get a boost to its strength and you increase the chance that it's going to be consolidated into semantic memory. So the spacing of activities in in classroom learning is also really important. We know that having to actively remember something for an informal test or a quiz also really strengthens that episodic trace and increases the chance that it will transition to be become a semantic memory. So there's all sorts of things that we can take from the science of memory and use it in the classroom in the way that we space and sequence learning. Something quite intuitive as a parent that I've noticed is if my two boys are skateboarding around the kitchen conjugating their verbs, they're much more engaged in the learning process. I don't know if that helps them remember, but by creating some sort of diversity in the revision process so it's not boring, it seems to help them memorize and learn. Is that just something quirky or is there any science behind the relationship between physical activity and memorizing? So I think that there's sort of two things that that taps into. So one is that it's got to be enjoyable. So there's some nice studies showing that when people are enjoying themselves, th- that process of consolidation is enhanced, right? The, and the second one is introducing information from different perspectives and in different contexts. Because one of the tricks with episodic and semantic memory is you can get what's called cue dependency. So for example, let's say I learned everything in the classroom, and then I'm in a situation that's not the classroom, it's actually harder to remember that material. Whereas if I were to have learned it in lots of different contexts, so from skating around the kitchen, then that creates, I guess, a more flexible memory trace that can be more easily accessed in the future. Yeah, that's so interesting. So you might learn the French verbs in the car. Then you might try them when you're walking around the golf course. Then you might try them. So you're trying, it's kind of flexibility and not, not just sitting down in one place to always learn the same thing. You sort of test your brain if you're accessing that information in different places. Exactly, exactly. It's that classic thing when you've, you know, you know, you remember at school, you know, when you learned something in the classroom and that's the only place you ever encounter it. And when you're back in the class, you might, it might come back to you, but in another context, in another room or outside of school, it's harder to remember. And that's the cue dependency of memory. Is it the case that the context that you learn in, so for example, if you're at the Natural History Museum and you're learning about elephants, because there is a sort of a visual component to that learning that's very, very vivid, is that learning going to be deeper, say, than the learning in the classroom if there's something rich and contextual attached to it that's visual? Yeah, so for about 50 years, we've known about this thing called levels of processing, which was a really simple experiment where they taught people I think they taught them new words, but they provided differing levels of information about them. So, you know, it could just be simple phonological information. It rhymes with 
you know, such and such. Could be how it might be used, or it could be deep semantic information about what that word means. And what they found is that the more contextual information that was added, the stronger the memory that was given and the better the recall later. And the, the interpretation of that was indeed exactly as you say, that the richer the contextual experience that's tied up with the memory, the more durable the memory, the more likely it is to be consolidated from episodic into that durable semantic format and accessible in the future. So something confusing for a lay person is that we've just said learning styles, being a visual learner is a load of old nonsense. Yet, if I do my children's spelling tests and I bring life to the words by providing a visual trigger or reminder, or we sing a song and something in relation, an auditory trigger, they seem to learn it better. So how does that kind of work? How can we untangle that? Well, the thing that's wrong with the neuromyth of the learning styles is the idea of pigeonholing kids mm. and saying, right, you learn in this way. And the, the reason that that's wrong is because like, let's imagine the teacher tells you, oh, Kathy, you're a visual learner. You know, you learn best when something's visual. Right? And then she starts writing something down on the board. Or you might not unreasonably think, well, there's no point me paying attention here, is there? Because this is not my preferred style. I should wait for the opportunity to use my preferred style. And actually, the data show that kids are no better or worse in their preferred style than any other style. So there is, there's nothing to it. So the, the issue with learning styles is really about the idea of pigeonholing kids and saying, you learn in this way, and that's the only way you learn. The difference with the sort of saying that contextually rich experiences can produce better learning is because so much is bound up with the memory, not just the thing that you want someone to remember, but everything that goes along with it, where they were sat, whether they were warm, what was on the walls who was sat next to them. The whole thing kind of gets like a snapshot, kind of gets recorded. And so the more contextual information to better distinguish it from other experiences and engage other cognitive processes as you're encoding new information, that does produce a better memory. But that's true for everybody. You'd be very impressed. I can still remember the definition of respiration for GCSE biology (laughs) because I learned it to the tune of uh, respiration. Respiration is the breakdown of food to release energy. It takes place in every living cell. That's <laughs> <laughs> you probably want to put those electrodes on my brain now and work out how I did that. The mnemonics are really powerful things, right? You find, I mean, there's a lot. I used to do a lot of music, and I, I've, I, mean, I have forgotten them now. But I used to. There are all sorts of mnemonics for things like you know, Richard of York, and for for remembering kind of the order of keys. It's very exciting because with my children, they absolutely love making up really rude mnemonics and they seem to remember. They love it. They love the process of creating them and then they can remember them the more shocking they are. They kind of like hold on to that information. Enjoyable, funny and distinctive. I think those are some pretty key ingredients for for a good memory. Now, Duncan, in anticipation for this podcast, I had questions from a A level student and he wanted to know how you studied for your A levels. How did you do it? We've mentioned lots of strategies already, but if you and I were giving advice to A level students who are facing their exams in June, one of the questions was about the relationship between anxiety, undermining memorizing and learning. And what would be your sort of best tips for the A level students who are looking into subjects in great detail and may have to manage that anxiety as well? Yeah, that's. I think anxiety is a major. I mean, it's casting. You know, we're talking twenty years ago. I'm just kind of casting my mind back. Strategies that I took. So I tried to work consistently, rather than kind of variably. So each day I would try and kind of get a set number of hours done. 
you know, if there was something organized, kind of more class-based, then I would kind of count that in my hours. If it was a day where there were kind of fewer set activities, that would be a day when I would do more on my own. I would do a lot of practice papers. So I think that for me, the process of forcing myself to remember what I can and highlighting areas that I can't remember was really powerful. And I found that, you know, if I did a practice paper one day and there was an area that I couldn't remember much on, and I would go through at the end and kind of do my own corrections and, and put the correct answers in, I found that I never forgot those answers. And in future, I would always remember them. Simply the act of forcing myself to try and remember that, realizing that there were some gaps, then filling in the gaps, they tended to stick really well. So I think doing practice papers, even though you know, you know, there's going to be these big gaps in, in what you can remember, it was really, really powerful. I would also set myself little quizzes at the end of each day. So once I'd kind of done a day's revision, I would finish by writing out 10 questions. And then the start of the next day, the first thing I would do was try and answer my own questions. So you were like an expert on memory even then? You knew exactly what you were doing intuitively? Yeah, I obviously didn't know the science behind it, but I had experienced that I remembered stuff a lot better in that. Like when I was just reading stuff or writing stuff out in a more kind of generic sense, I found it much harder to remember. Whereas if I kind of put myself on the spot, that and forced myself to try and remember stuff, then then the memories became much more durable. And of course, parents are very interested in how to aid their child at that stage or GCSE stage with their revision. And one of the things I'm very interested in is that sort of protege effect where the child has to teach the parents. So as the parent, we don't need to know about A-level physics, but we might listen to them explain how electricity works. And then the child can understand what they know or don't know. What would you say about that particular psychological process? Well, I think having to teach someone else, which is sort of what sort of what the A-level students doing there for the parent is sort of teaching them. So I not I actually don't do undergraduate teaching anymore, but I I used to, and I remember the first big bit of undergraduate teaching I had to do was on this particular theory from visual attention, and I'd be like, oh yeah, I read that ages ago, and then I had to explain it to someone, and I was like, you know what, I'm not sure I really understand this after all, and it really forced me. When you have to explain it to someone else, you really have to understand it. Because as you're explaining it, you start to think, you know what, this doesn't actually make as much sense as I thought it did. Yeah, it's such a brilliant thing to do to for a parent to facilitate that process. It's such a good revision tool. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I would say is sleep. Really important. I think we so undersell the value of, of sleep. So that's why I think it's really important to space learning carefully and to work consistently because when you get yourself into a good routine and you get a decent amount of sleep, the whole kind of consolidation process is improved and you're more alert during the day. Less anxious. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I find anxiety provoking about exams and revision is, is that feeling that you're like, well, I've got only got so much time and I'm now I'm beginning to worry that there's not enough time for me to cover everything that I need to cover and I won't be prepared in time for the exam. And when you're tired, you start to think, well, I'm, I'm finding it harder to learn this stuff. And it can become a real cycle. Like, I'm tired, so I'm not making as much progress. That's making me feel anxious because now I'm starting to look at the diary and think about the days going by, which is why I think it's important to kind of try and plan far ahead so that you get yourself into a good routine well in advance that you can kind of maintain all the way to the exam. What about students who claim cramming is what their brain loves to do and that it's, it's good for them and they're big fans of it? What does the science say about cramming? 
So yeah, it says that it's not good. <laughs> the problem with cramming is that it's sort of all the bad forms of memory, right? So it's not spaced learning. It's pretty much one shot. So you and you kind of trying to get through everything in a very short space of time. There's no time for consolidation. There's no time for contextualization. And the end result is that those memories are incredibly fragile. So come the day in the exam in a different context, it might be harder to access them. And certainly two, three, four, five days later, they won't be any good to you. Mm. And, and the data do show that really clearly, that stuff that's learned during cramming, it doesn't last. And that can be really challenging. Let's say you're, you're, you, you know, you're doing biology and chemistry, where actually it's good to have some deep knowledge of both of those to inform each other. If you're just cramming, it's very hard to get the kind of, the kind of learning that's going to mean you're going to start seeing links across different topics. Mm. So households across Britain will be quoting Uncle Dr. Duncan Astle and saying, <laughs> you're not allowed to cram, that's not going to work. Now, I want to hear about your work with struggling learners. We hear about children struggling in the classroom, struggling with their learning. Tell us about the work that you did. I think it was called CAM, some sort of research project. Yeah, so this CAM stands for the Centre of Attention, Learning and Memory. So the sort of backstory is that the way we study kids who struggle to learn often is we try and kind of categorise them. We try and kind of identify different groups and then we study them as, as if they're a kind of distinct entity, you know, kids with ADHD, kids with math difficulties, kids with reading difficulties, kids with language disorders. And there are some real problems with relying solely on that approach. For example, it turns out that kids who are supposedly in the same category can be really different from each other. And kids who are in different categories can actually have very similar characteristics. And so the idea of CALM was a sort of all-comer study. So it was a, a large team of people. It was started by someone called Sue Gavacol and, and led by someone called Joni Holmes. And I was kind of brought on board to do the neuroimaging side of things. And the idea was that we would we would invite speech and language therapists, special educational needs coordinators, specialist teachers, educational psychologists, clinical psychologists, you name it. If it's a professional that comes into contact with a child, if they think that child is struggling in some way to do with cognition, then they can refer the child to the study. And we started off thinking, well, no one's going to want to take part in this quite strange design. But as soon as word got out that they could refer kids to the study, we were inundated. And so in the end, we sorted over a thousand children and it's this really amazing snapshot of all all the all the children and adolescents out there in the real world who are actually coming into contact with these professionals who actually are perhaps not exactly the same people who tend to appear in the research literature and what it created was this really amazing resource we've got this kind of really large data set of a thousand individuals we've got so many different kind of cognitive and learning measures on each person about half of them have been through the brain scanner and it's already been used for about 60 different projects. And that, that number is kind of just growing and growing and growing as more people find out about it. And then they want to access the data and, and run a study of their own with the data. But what did you discover that, for example, a classroom teacher or a school leader would be interested in knowing? So many things. And I'm going to choose a couple of highlights. So the big one, I think, is that when a child arrives in class and they have a formal diagnostic label, that label itself is not very predictive of the kind of strengths and difficulties that that individual child may have. Now, my experience with teachers is that that to them is unsurprising because that is exactly their experience. But of course, in the research literature, that's heresy because these kind of diagnostic labels are our whole basis by which we organize research. And so the, the demonstration that the specific label that a child has is not predictive of their difficulties. But there are certain kind of cognitive characteristics that children will have. 
regardless of their diagnostic label, and those are much more predictive of their learning. So for example, kids with working memory impairments or kids with phonological impairments tend to have difficulties in reading things like reading and maths, and that, that's pretty predictive. And so that would be much more useful information than the diagnostic label per se. But most schools will say, well, how on earth can we capture some of that neurodiversity earlier in, you know, at the point of entry into school? What should we do? There's great difference of opinion often between different educational professionals working and using different tools. If you were the head of a school, what would you be doing at point of entry to, for screening purposes? Well, I know, I, yeah, I realize it's controversial. I think it partly depends on what you do with the information that you gather from the screening. But I would be tempted, so I, I did work with a school and the intake, they did some very simple phonological awareness assessments to see how good children were at decoding the sounds of words. And they did some very simple oral language assessments. And because they, we know that those are predictive of the kids who, who might struggle to learn to read. And so they did those assessments really early on when the kids were four or five. And then they were able to sort of follow those kids closely and make sure that they did kind of learn the basics of reading um, in line with their peers. And because they were alert to it, when kids started to struggle with reading, they were kind of on it more quickly. So I realized that that's not everyone has those resources. But if I were designing a system and I had you know a lot of cash, then, then that is what I would do. I would have some very simple kind of screening just to identify kids who might struggle with particular aspects of learning. Now, one of the sort of outputs from the CAM study was that it underscored the need to understand more about why children are struggling in the classroom rather than adopting those off-the-shelf interventions, say, for particular labels. But does that mean that greater exploration, curiosity is required about that particular child's strengths, you know, their individual profile, as difficult as that may be? One of the really popular things at the minute is this idea of tailored intervention and tailored support, and I, which I have no problem. I think that's great. But I think there's also a scope for some more general, broad things that we should be doing that will benefit everyone. And I mean, think of some good examples. So, for example, you would never think of using an oral language or a phonological intervention with a child with ADHD, because we don't think of ADHD as having anything to do with, you know, learning to read or decoding sounds. But it turns out that sort of something like 60 to 70 percent of kids with an ADHD diagnosis also have a reading difficulty. And so because our thinking about intervention is so heavily based upon the diagnostic criteria. So, for instance, ADHD, nothing to do with reading and phonological difficulties. That's not part of the diagnostic criteria. So we don't think of that as an intervention for that particular group. But actually, because reading difficulties are so common in kids with ADHD, that actually that would be a great intervention for those kids and so another example would be autism so for example anxiety is not part of a, a, the diagnostic criteria for autism however the number one common experience of autistic people is feeling anxious and anxiety right that is the number one thing that they identify as being as being a barrier to everyday life and, and learning in school so actually, an anxiety intervention as a frontline intervention for an autistic person could be a really valuable thing. So I think what I'm saying is that the moment that you put the diagnostic labels and the diagnostic criteria to one side and instead think what would be the most useful intervention for this person, I think there are lots of interventions that we have that actually might be usefully deployed for those individuals. So it's really about looking at it from a different lens and thinking about what you're actually treating first with those particular conditions and having a very broad mind 
and the thinking about everything that's going on in that child's life, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think it's about identifying what are the barriers for that person. So, for example, an autistic intervention, an intervention for an autistic person doesn't need to somehow kind of work through the diagnostic criteria for autism and try and, and try and change any of those things. Instead, it needs to ask the person who's autistic, well, what are the main barriers that you encounter? That's where we'll target our interventions. And I think that's a different mindset from sort of using the diagnostic criteria as our guide. I mean, instead, using the child that's in front of you as the guide. Two last questions. Are apps useful for learning? So we've got lots of revision apps for GCSE, A-level, where they sort of help you retrieve the knowledge, that sort of quizzing technique that you used for your A-level preparation. If you had a teenage son doing his GCSEs or A-level, would you encourage them to use apps to check knowledge? I probably would. But I think what I would do is to say to that son, let's test this works first, right? You know, let's give ourselves a couple of weeks using this. And if we think that it's producing good learning, then stick with it. And if we don't, well, then even though it's, you know, it's it's nice and fancy, it's not doing the, the trick. I mean, I, it sounds to me, depending upon what the app's doing, but if it's helping you kind of through this kind of self-testing, frequently encountering information, then it would really help with memory. But I would put it to the test. And really, children are very good at working out what helps, what doesn't. That doesn't help me. That's rubbish. They're quite good at being pretty brutal about those different revision techniques as well, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the bottom line is that, you know, if you're you're regularly kind of testing yourself and you're finding that the strategy you've taken to learning isn't really producing the kind of memories that you need for those tests, then you've got to be brutal and go through and think, well, what am I doing that's not working and how can I change it and, and find a way that works for you? Something that's very sort of in vogue, although it's been there for 40, 50 years, is talking about metacognition and teaching children to think about the way they think, the way they learn. But often I'm hearing from children that they're sort of fatigued by even thinking about, they're not interested in learning about how they're learning. And they end up feeling a bit sort of demoralized, even they're made to watch videos on metacognition or they're made to reflect on their learning and think about their progress moving forward. Is it useful for children to understand more about the science of learning? Or as you say, it has to be enjoyable and some of them don't find that process fun. That's a really good question. It's a really good question. Like we were saying earlier, when I was when I was at school, I had no idea about any of this. You know, I was just sort of trial and error just seeing what works. If someone had sat me down and said, let me tell you about episodic and semantic memory and how they worked, I don't know that I'd have been that interested. I guess it's about frequency, right? If someone had sat me down and done like a one hour session at the start of the school year saying, this is how, you know, these are some really important things about cognition that's worth remembering, off you go. Then I think that would have been fine. But I think the kind of, perhaps it's the kind of continual kind of being reminded of that, that itself has become kind of saturated. Okay, one last question. We hear on the grapevine you run a lab called RED, Resilience in Education and Development, Understanding Resilience in Childhood, which is right up my alley. And I want to hear about that lab, what you do, what's going on in there. It sounds very exciting. Uh, And tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so RED is a study that we're running as, as part of our group. And so the reason that we wanted to run the study is because there's been a lot of work that's looking at the kind of environment children are growing up in and how that can shape cognitive development and brain development. And so what we wanted to try and do was recruit kids who might not normally take part in research studies and 
So we worked really hard with things like food banks, local charities, Beavers and Scouts, basically trying to diversify the routes in which we recruit kids. And so we were able to recruit a really nice cohort of families. And we've created a rich data set, a little bit like Calm, but this time the, the, the variability in the data is all coming from the kind of environments that children are growing up in. And so we've got really rich questionnaires for parents to fill out about, you know, what home life is like, what school life is like, activities, interests, economics, all sorts of things. And now what we're doing is using that data to ask questions like, you know, what are the key ingredients in a child's home life that seem to be related to key outcomes like cognitive development? So things like language in the home, how many books are in the home, reading practices is a really great predictor of all sorts of things. Whereas kind of more traditional measures like income, which is often used by the government as a rule of thumb, is not such a great predictor. And so what we're sort of realizing is that the kind of more social elements of socioeconomic status seem to trump the kind of economic elements of it. But we've got a long way to go and we're still, you know, we've got a lot of brain data, for example, to study as well. It sounds fascinating. I know it's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it, that the amount of dialogue in the family home and the quality of that dialogue and the quality of conversations you enjoy with your children and working on those social skills, oracy, it goes such a long way, doesn't it, when it comes to academic attainment? There was a really interesting study recently that showed that those kind of linguistic exchanges dropped off towards the end of the month. And, of course, one interpretation of that is that as parents become worried about the paycheck, or that they're running out of money towards the end of the month, that itself has a knock-on impact on their mental health and on their interactions with the child. So these are kind of using passive recordings around the home. It's kind of really interesting phenomenon. You get the slight dip in language exchange between parent and child as the month goes on. And I think the only interpretation I can think of is that basically as they run out of money, and I think it's a really powerful demonstration of how kind of the economics and the social can go hand in hand. Fascinating. And obviously lockdown learning, Surely one working hypothesis might be that when we were with our children together for three months and you weren't allowed to go out except once a day, that there could have been more opportunity for that sort of family talk and potentially it would offset some of the damage, potentially, for want of a better word, that was done by being sort of denied peer interaction and socialization at school. Well, I guess it's a scenario where the family became the child's entire social world for a prolonged period of time. And I can imagine that relationships and, and bonds were formed in a, in a stronger way than may otherwise have been. But, you know, as we've all experienced, it also can be difficult kind of basically living with living, learning, working side by side with the same people for prolonged periods of time. So peer to peer interaction is so kind of vital for, mm. for, for it, it's kind of developmentally crucial. And of course, we know even from very recent research that the emotional arousal that comes with argument, arguing with your parents, that can have a horrible impact on sleep, On which of course will have an impact on memory and learning and motivation. So I think the potential to have more argument in the home arguably could affect academic ability as well. Well, one of the main mechanisms that's thought to reflect how it is that early adversities can shape cognitive and brain development is through stress, is that when when stress hormones get pumping, one prominent theory is that essentially it sort of accelerates things like brain and cognitive development prematurely, and that that can have long-term negative consequences. Essentially, you know, the, the argument goes that what your brain is doing is trying to sort of become more adult very quickly, but actually what it re requires is sort of more of a slow bake 
And so stress is thought to be one of the key potential mechanisms by which early adversities can shape cognitive and, and brain development. Now, listen, before we let you go, I know that you have an amazing website that has access to lots of interesting studies and resources. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, our lab website. So our lab is called 4D, which does sound like it could be your new favorite boy band, but it's not. It's um, 4D. The D stand for Development, Dynamics, Disorders and Data Sciences. They're the kind of the things that we combine and if you go to our website, which is astellab.com, then you can find out more about our research. You can find out about the lab and who's in it. And there's also a section that says resources for teachers. And that's amazing. Kind of, that, that's where we kind of store talks and, and workshops and things that we've we've given in the past. Well, I can't wait to tell teachers about that in our tooled up email this month. Duncan, thank you for all the work that you do. I could talk to you all day, as you could probably tell. And we're really grateful and excited to learn about your work and to go in there and investigate your website and keep a track of all the great work that you're doing. So thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site. <laughs>